Hi, y'all. My name is Cricket. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October the 19th of 1969, and I'm extremely grateful for that. I'm almost 60 years old. I sobered up when I was 28, so you don't have to sit there and try to figure it all out. <laughs> this is really, really a neat deal. I got up early this morning because y'all are behind us time-wise, and I got here at According to y'all, 10-something, and it just really wasn't. It was a lot later than that. And driving down, John and Dan picked me up, and I had a wonderful visit and got to meet two men that were just very, very gracious. And he, I only had like an hour to do the stuff that women do to get ready to do what women do. And, and I thought, well, it's not as important as it was when I was in my 20s. So... I'll just throw it together and go on. And then I get lost and in the casino. <laughs> and I'm running out of time, and I'm trying to remember I'm supposed to find an escalator, but I passed this machine. <laughs> it was a nickel machine. <laughs> and I thought, well, maybe I got time to do that. <laughs> And so I did that, and then I had to stop and wash the black stuff off of my hands because I won $5. <laughs> and then I get to come up here, and I get to look out at y'all, and it's so neat. And I not only get to see you, but this is really unusual because I can stand up here and see, I can look out there and see that river flowing through. And I know y'all didn't do that. My God made that river for me to stand up here this afternoon and behold his beauty, not am just amongst you, not just here, but I get to look out there and I get to see that river and know that God is. One more time to be reminded that God is. And that is not the way I was when I got here, I guarantee you. I was born into a family that's a little bit different. I don't like the word dysfunctional. My father is a full-blooded Frenchman and I will tell you that the man was a very, very potent man. He sired 17 children, and none of us knew him, so he, you know, he was one of the first service workers I ever met. He <laughs> believed in the spirit of rotation. <laughs> and uh, my mama's full-blooded black Irish, and she's extremely superstitious. And she believes that one child in every family is born evil. They're born possessed. <laughs> you know, without me telling you, that would be me. <laughs> you determine it by the weight at birth, and I weighed two and a half pounds, so I was born evil. And I really did become that. I truly did become that. She was very, very fortunate to marry a man, and we made our living following crops all across the United States of America. We were crop followers. And before you have any empathy or sympathy for me, please understand that I loved that way of life. I got to have a relationship with dirt that most people never, ever are blessed to have. And I'm being very, very sincere. I love dirt. I love the feel of it on my skin. I love the coolness of it. I love the warmth of it. I love the color of it. I really am grateful that I was exposed to dirt as a child 
because I have an affinity with it that I'm extremely grateful for. I love to pick a fresh vegetable, and I love to feel the warmth of it. I love to pick a peach and, and rub, the, rub it on your cheek. You know, the smell, the colors of everything that, that were given to me as a child, as a crop follower. I loved that way of life. The only thing I did not like about it was that every time the picking season changed, we had to move. And every time we moved, we had to start a new school. And every time we started a new school, I didn't fit in. And I always believed in my heart of hearts it was because of the outside of Cricket. If my hair were a different color, we didn't have indoor water and we didn't have electricity and those kind of things, so I had horrible, horrible skin. And my teeth were rotting out of my head. And in my heart of hearts, I believe that if this looked different, you would allow your children to play with me. But this never did change. We went to church on a regular basis like most alcoholics. We went twice a year, every year. <laughs> we went at Thanksgiving time, and we went at Christmas time. And let me tell you why we went. Kind of like the people come in to get the court paper signed. There was a reward. If we went, we listened to a minister stand behind a pulpit and deliver a sermon, and we listened to it all the way through, we would get a big wicker basket of goodies at the end of that sermon. And so we had to do that. Now, I'm not going to tell you that that gentleman was wrong, and I'm definitely not going to tell you that he lied. I am going to tell you that I don't think he knows what the little girl heard. What I heard this gentleman say was, anything I prayed for in the name of Jesus, I'd received. And I believed him. I believed that man. And I went home from, from church that morning, and I, they assign places for crop followers to live, and it's usually one room and a kitchenette. And we had a little mirror. And I remember looking in that little mirror and finding a place on my face that didn't have a zit and putting my finger on it and doing just what that minister had said, saying, in the name of Jesus, when I wake it in the morning, make the rest of my face as clear as this spot is right here. When I woke up in the morning, there was a zit right where I prayed. <laughs> and you know what that did? That told me Jesus didn't like me. Now, that's not what that man meant. That, that, and I'm very careful what I tell people the big book says. I'm not going to guarantee you anything that I do not know can be guaranteed. I'm not going to guarantee that your family will be restored, that you'll get a better job, that you won't have financial problems, because that's not what my book tells me. I will guarantee you there is a solution on which we can absolutely rely. I will guarantee you that. But that man didn't mean any harm. He doesn't know what I heard. He doesn't know where that took me. We wound up in Denver, Colorado when I was about 11 or 12 and settled down. <laughs> we were going to have a home. We were going to have those kind of things. We were no longer going to pick crops. And I found a place in that house that became a safe place for me. I found a place behind the wood stove where I could crawl and nobody could come and get me. I was safe for the very first time in my life behind that wood stove. And I'd stay behind that wood stove, and I would pretend. And I would pretend the outside of Cricket away. Because if the outside of me were different, everything inside of me would be different. 
At this time in my life, two of my older brothers were career men. They were armed robbers. They had a... <laughs> the IRS were lucrative. You don't pay taxes. They enjoyed their job, but they didn't want it talked about. And so in exchange for me not talking about their career choice, they brought me a present. And my family was not a gift-giving family. And I never will forget it. I'm behind the wood stove. I'm 12 years of age. And I get a present in a little brown paper sack. And I remember that my heart beat fast. And I thought, oh, my, a present. And I opened up that paper sack. And there was a little bottle, probably a pint of whiskey. I didn't know what it was, but it was a present. And I remember sitting there and opening that little bottle of whiskey up, putting it up to my lips and drinking it. And I remember that burning my throat, burning my chest, that whiskey burned all the way down. And it burned all the way back up again. And it burned all the way back down again. And guess what? I drank it until it was gone. And that was the way I drank until the day I walked into the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. If I had it, I drank it until it was gone. I left home. I said a prayer behind that stove to God, and I remember it quite vividly. Dear God, sir, my name is Cricket, and I don't believe in you, and I don't believe in family, and I don't believe in cleanliness, and I don't believe in goodness. But just in case you are, this is my very last prayer to you, sir. Help me to never feel again. And big boy, I don't want any special favors. I don't even want to feel good. I left home at the age of 12 and started living on the streets of Denver, Colorado, doing whatever I had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. The state of Colorado interfered. They did not intervene back then. They interfered. They said, young girls do not live the lifestyle I was living. They do not sleep in fields and under bridges. And so I was, I had something, I guess I was called incorrigible. And they were going to punish me. I didn't know what incorrigible was, but I thought, geez, that's kind of neat. They sent me to the Colorado State Reform School. It was absolutely wonderful. It was up in the mountains in Morrison, Colorado. And it was really amazing. There was one person to a bed. And I'd never had that experience. Two sheets on every bed, and I'd never had that experience. An indoor toilet, <laughs> a big old white bathtub, not the galvanized number three in the middle of the kitchen floor on Saturday night. Oh, I love punishment. It, it, was, it was amazing. Three meals every day, every day. And you knew where they came from. You didn't have to scrape the maggots off the cantaloupe to eat it. It was there every day. I stayed there a year, and I guess I became cordial because they released me. <laughs> I went right back to the streets of Denver doing whatever I had to do to get that next drink of alcohol. At the age of 16, the state of Colorado interfered one more time. They did not recognize teenage alcoholism back in the middle 50s. They took me from the streets of Denver to the Colorado State Insane Asylum in Pueblo, Colorado, they had to diagnose me, so they diagnosed me as schizophrenic with paranoid reaction with psychotic tendencies. I thought, I'm only 16. You know, that's a lot of things to be. <laughs> <laughs> to make me not be those things, they gave me 10 milligrams of Valium, 25 milligrams of Librium, and 50 milligrams of Thorazine four times a day. 
the compulsion to drink was removed. I was there for 18 months. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, they strapped me to a gurney and wheeled me into the electric shock treatment room. They put a row of galls in my mouth. They held me from my neck to my ankles. They put gooey stuff on my temples and a leather band around my forehead, and the psychiatrist would reach his hand to the lever and ask me if I was scared. I promise you, I was as scared of my last shock treatment as I was of my first shock treatment. I left the Colorado State Insane Asylum a week prior to my 18th birthday. I weighed 300 pounds. I could not get out into the sunshine because of the Thorazine. I could not speak because of the shock treatments, and I did that shuffle that people on medication tend to do. I am so grateful I left a week prior to my 18th birthday because the state was going to sterilize me at the age of 18. And had they sterilized me, God would not have gotten to give me a baby. I got, when I was sober in AA, eight or nine years, I got pregnant, and God used my body to let me carry a child, a living child inside of me. He trusted me, and he let me become a mother with all the inherent responsibilities, all the joy and the sorrow and the trauma that goes being with a single mother. God trusted me to do that job, and I have to believe I did the best I knew how to do from somebody who had never seen any positive parenting. The fruits of that result, of that doing the best I knew how to do, is that my daughter is a decent young woman. She's married to a decent man, and today she's having a birthday party for my grandson who's two years old, and he's a decent two-year-old. And that's because of the men and women in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous in Al-Anon. But I never knew that any of that was possible. When I left that Colorado State Insane Asylum, my chin laid over on my chest and I drooled. I have brain damage. I'm not stupid. I'm not ignorant. I just uh, know how to work around what I need to work around. And I'm so uncomplicated that sometimes it confuses you. <laughs> I'm, I'm serious. Well, what do you really mean? Well, I really mean I think that's an awesome river. But tell me how you feel. You get confused. I don't. I know that's God's gift. So if you want to get confused about what I say or what I mean and have a little meaning and discuss it, that's fine with me. Just don't invite me. I don't care. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. I just don't. <laughs> but before, when I left that state hospital, I shuffled my way from the Greyhound bus depot to a beer joint, and for the next 10 years of my life, I hitchhiked across the United States and took a Greyhound bus and just knew that I was going to die a drunken female tramp on the streets of some city somewhere. If you had ever asked me my name at that time in my life, I would have told you my name is nothing. I'm going nowhere. That prayer had been answered. I was incapable of feeling anything when I walked into the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. I wound back up in Denver, Colorado in the early summer of 1969, found me a beer joint. I weighed 78 pounds. The teeth were rotted out of my head. I love my teeth now. <laughs> I love them. I went to a dentist and for $350, he 
gave me these things. You just pop in and you pop out. You, you know, I always wanted to look like a doll, and when I take these out, I look just like a cabbage patch. It's, it's amazing. And, and see, I'm really grateful for them. I'm really grateful. And anyway, <laughs> I wound up back in Denver, Colorado, and I'm sitting on a beer joint stool. And some man and his wife approached me. And he said, Cricket, my name is Harry. And my wife and I have watched you for a long time now. And we think you have a problem drinking. I said, no, sir, I don't have a problem drinking. He said, I'll make a deal with you. Because we see you go places you don't know where you're going. And I thought, so's everybody else. You do things you don't remember doing. I thought, so's everybody else. You fight over stupid things. I thought, no, I don't. Everything I fight over is really got it. There's a real reason. <laughs> now, I, and I would. I would fight, and I probably still would. But if you called me inebriated, I was going to deck you. If you called me a drunken slut, it didn't bother me. But I didn't know what inebriated meant. <laughs> you know, don't call me something I don't know what it is. And I sat there, and that man, I felt like he was challenging me. And I'm one of those people that other people vicariously live out their own insanities through by daring me to do stuff. You're so afraid to do it, but you've got this sick imagination. And you, well, I'll get Cricket to do it, because Cricket would take a dare. And at one time in my life, I would. If you want to do something totally abhorrent and insane, do it yourself. Don't even tell me about it. I don't want to know about it, because I can't behave that way any longer. But at that point, I felt like he was challenging me. And he said, we'd like you to go to an AA meeting with us tomorrow night. And if we find out you don't have a problem drinking, I'll leave you alone. I said, okay, big boy. And he said, now when you're waking in the morning, don't take a drink. I said, no problem. I went to my sister's home that night, crawled up in her bed and passed out, woke up the next day and reached to the side of my bed and did what I don't, did every day, brought my whiskey up to my lips, could not take that first drink. I guarantee you I got so physically ill not taking that drink, but I couldn't. It just, I couldn't. And I, today I understand that was God doing for Cricket what she could not do for herself. That idiot called my sister's house about noon, and she put me on the phone. He said, this is Harry. Have you had a drink? I said, no. Do you need a ride to the meeting? I said, let me tell you something, fool. I told you I'd be at your meeting of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I'll be there, but I don't need anything from you. He said, okay. Now, I've never had a DWI. I never drove before I got sober. I got drunk and got in a shopping cart on a hill in St. Joe, Missouri. And you can't stop one. And you can't steer one. And by the time they finally stopped me, I got a ticket for driving a non-motorized vehicle under the influence of alcohol. So if you need a DWI to be a member, I guess I, that's just going to have to qualify me. <laughs> but I didn't need anything from that man, so I took a yellow cab to my first AA meeting. And the closer we got, the more the word anonymous threw me. The word anonymous was one of those words I didn't know what it meant, and I couldn't figure out what it meant. But it sounded secretive. It sounded disgusting. And it sounded like something you wouldn't want to tell your best friend about. I didn't like that word. 
And so the closer we got to that AA group, I decided not to let the cab driver know exactly where I was going because he knew me from my profession I had at the time I came into AA, and I didn't want to damage it. <laughs> so uh, when, he le- when he left, I walked into 1311 York Street in Denver, Colorado, and I thought, oh, my God, these people are nasty. They smell bad. I, and what it is... I think everybody had taken a bath at the same day. And so they smelled different than what I was used to. And I remember sitting on the back row thinking, oh, my God. I came into AA with two prejudices. I did not like red-haired women. Now, I sponsor three of the most beautiful red-haired women in the world today. God doing for me what I could not do for myself. And I did not like lesbians. And I sponsor six lesbians, God doing for me what I could not do for myself. But that day, a red-headed lady came walking up to me. And y'all, it's really her fault, because she walks up to me and she says, Hi, are you an alky? Now what would you do? I knocked her on her rear ends, what I did. She had no reason to speak to me or ask me a question. I sat on the back row, and I'm waiting for them to kick me out because I really want to get back to my beer joint, and I really want to get drunk. And they passed their little wicker baskets, and when I was a newcomer, they used to say, if you've got it, put it in. If you need it, take it out. <laughs> I took their money, <laughs> all of it. They used to say, take what you need now and come back and get what you need later. And so I took their money, I broke into their office and stole all their office equipment, took it to the pawn shop and hawked it, came back to break into their Coke machine, and I got met by a bunch of bleeding deacons. All of them were men. None of the women agreed to come with them to talk to me. And what they said was, Cricket, we're not going to tolerate your behavior anymore. And I've been sober some time now. I've got three weeks. (laughs) You know? And they're messing with me. And I thought, thank God, because as soon as they kick me out, I can go crawl up on my bar stool and die a drunken woman on the streets. I sat there, and, and I thought to myself, they said, we want to kick you out real bad. I said, okay. And they said, our traditions won't allow us to. And I said, what on earth is that? You know, they'd been having emergency group consciences. Emergency steering committee meetings, studying the traditions. You know, I was, a, I was good for that group. <laughs> they said I had to bring back the money I panhandled. I could not give my price list out to the male members of Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> I said, excuse me, you're carrying this give it away too far. There's, I'm not a sharing woman, I'm a charging woman. And they had all kinds of rules. And since they could not kick me out, what they did is they assigned me two men to escort me in and out of AA. And I stayed sober six months because they've got to kick me out or I'm weak. They've got to do the job. I get approached by the narcotics division of the Denver Police Force and told I had to leave Denver and move to Fort Worth, Texas. They bought me a 58 Rambler station wagon. They bought me three cases of real soft toilet paper and gave me a high school diploma. I drove that car with my sister. I'd never driven before. That car had three pedals. I've got two legs. (laughs) 
They're wanting me to do stuff up here at the same time I'm doing stuff down here. I could use first gear and third gear. And I took that 58 Rambler station wagon, and Sally and I went from Denver to Fort Worth, and I did the thing I was told to do next. I found an AA group. Now, the car never went anywhere again. It, it just wouldn't do anything. And so when I was looking for a place for my sister and me to live, I found a place right next door to a lucky lady beer joint, my kind of beer joint, and I thought, Texas will kick me out. Denver wouldn't, but Texas, you know, they're different. They're really backwards, so they will kick me out of their group. And I went to my first AA meeting in Texas, hitchhiked from the far east side to the far southwest, and a red-headed lady came walking up to me, and she said, Hello, darling. And I just got the creepy crawlies all over me. And she opened up her arm. She was actually going to hug me. And I knocked her on her rear end. <laughs> Before I had six months of continuous sobriety, they installed a floor safe at that group. Uh, <laughs> had emergency group consciences. <laughs> Never called on me to speak or share in a discussion meeting. Uh, Switch from glass tables, glass top tables to wooden tables. Made all kinds of decisions. At this group is where I did my first act of service work. I sat in the meetings and I heard about Al-Anons. I heard that they're sicker than we are. Now don't you Al-Anons get mad at me behind this. Because I never had my Al-Anon. So don't get mad at me. Get mad at the people who told me. Because I'm hearing this, they're sicker than we are, and I think, well, somebody needs to tell them. <laughs> Y'all just sit here in this room and talk about it. They didn't like us drunk, and they don't like us sober. Now, bear in mind that I sponsor one of the most wonderful Al-Anon women in the world today. I attend Al-Anon meetings without interfering with, with Al-Anon meetings. There's not a program I respect are men and women I admire more than I do the Al-Anon family program and the Alateen program. So just know that I didn't, this is different today. I thought, how am I going to let these women know? So I went to the hospital, and I stowed the intensive care unit sign off the hospital door after I had a gentleman pointed out to me. And I took it back to my group, and I nailed it to the Al-Anon room door <laughs> so that they would know how sick they were. And that evening, our Al-Anons met twice a week, and they were so cute. I mean, I don't know about y'all's groups, but our Al-Anons had to walk through our meeting room into their, their Al-Anon room, and there was always one that came in a little bit late. And she was just precious. When they shut the door between the groups, that intensive care unit sign showed, and all of the AA people turned and looked at me. And the late Al-Anon came in, and the back of her little ears just turned the prettiest purple. And she walked in that door, and she shut up emphatically. And then the Al-Anon came out. <laughs> the Al-Anon was the most precious thing I have ever seen. Her little nostrils were flared out. The veins in her temples stuck out. And her shoulders, and she had perfect diction. Who hung that sign? And I said, lady, I did that. Because I was proud. That was my service work, by golly. And she said, Oh, Cricket, it's okay. She was scared of me. See, I've had to go back and tell those, those women at that time. We only had one man, Al-Anon, back then. I am so sorry that my behavior offended you. 
what can I do to make it right? I've had to do that, and I don't mind doing that. I do not mind making amends for my actions. I do not mind cleaning up the wreckage of my past. Somebody copped a resentment at that group, and they went in and they set it on fire. There were two groups set on fire the same week. I didn't do either one of them. I have not set an AA group on fire yet. I just haven't done it. But people in Fort Worth, some people still believe I did that. When the group moved, I could not make the move with it. And at this time, I've got seven or eight years of sobriety. And I went to another group in Fort Worth where I was told from the day I walked into Fort Worth I would never fit in. The women at this group were ladies. They would never accept a woman like me. The men were professional businessmen. They would never accept a woman like me. And I thought, but what choice do I have? What choice do I have? And I walked into this place called Harbor, and a red-headed lady came walking up to me. <laughs> and she was an older lady. I would have hit her. The want to wasn't there. And she walked up to me, and she said, Cricket, I'm scared of you. And I said, okay. And she said, but my name's Betty G, and I'm going to be your sponsor. <laughs> I said, lady, I've been sober several years. And she said, and I'm not taking anything away from that. You have been sober. I want to make a deal with you. Let's go in the back room here, the office at Harbor Club. And if I think you understand what the program of recovery as outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous is all about, I'll leave you alone. I said, okay. We walked into the back room of Harbor. Betty G sat behind the desk. She took this book from the desk, this book, our book, big book, the letter, the letter that those men and women sat down and wrote to us so that we do have a way out, so that we do have a solution, so that we can have hope, so that we can have God. She took that big book, she opened and I started reading to Betty G. Rarely have we seen a person fail. And I read all the, through, all the way through the ABCs. And she took the big book out of my hand and she said, Cricket, darling, you can't read. And it was like I'd been gut kicked. I said, excuse me, woman, I just read you the first portion of chapter five. She said, no, I had it open on chapter three. And see, that other secret was out. She took me to a thing called remedial reading. I read. I read today. I can, I, they taught me there's only 26 little things. And I know how to get those things to join hands and make a word. And it's not something I take for granted. You know, when I see a word, it's not just a word. It's a, it's a word that creates a picture behind my eyes. And that picture goes down all the way to my soul. You know, it, and I don't know how to explain that. If you have never been functionally illiterate, then maybe you don't understand it. But it's such a blessing that I am so grateful for. Those men and women that would never accept a woman like me made me change the way I dressed. Betty said, you can't dress like something I'm not going to let you sell anymore. I said, okay. <laughs> See, I didn't know that I could fire a sponsor. <laughs> I didn't know that if she told me something I didn't like, I could just get rid of her. Thank God I didn't know that. They taught me how to write. They taught me how to do basic mathematics. 
I can use most of the kitchen, the knife, fork, and spoon in the right manner most of the time. I know how to say please, thank you, excuse me, I'm sorry. May I help you? I know how to do those things because those men and women that would never accept a person like me cared enough to take me on the most incredible journey. With many years of continuous sobriety, God took his magnificent fingernails and just started gently opening up like open heart surgery down my breastbone. And he opened it up there in the middle of that room at Harbor Group. And he told those people, she's a jigsaw puzzle. Everything inside of her is fragmented and in pieces. So I'll tell you what y'all do. You work on the outside of her. And I'm going to find that piece of this puzzle that is always missing, the last piece of the puzzle. And he took out of me at that moment my heart of stone, and he put in me a heart of flesh, and I didn't even know it. And he laid that piece down, and they worked around that piece. I will tell you that I've had 12 husbands in Alcoholics Anonymous. Two of them were mine. <laughs> My sponsor made me quit that too. I got the opportunity to do things for my sponsor. My sponsor and, and the people down there taught me how to be a mother. See, my daughter's supposed to lay in the floor and see a foot coming upside her head. Somebody's supposed to grab her by the hair of her head and take their fist and double it up and hit her upside the face and call her a dirty name. You know why? Because she's my daughter. She's supposed to go to jail. She's supposed to work the streets. She's my daughter. That's not the way it was. Because regardless of what anybody else in the whole wide world may think, Alcoholics Anonymous gave me a new birth. It, I was totally reborn, as innocent as if I'd never been exposed to anything. I guarantee you I'm not going to steal from you today. That's your money. I don't care how you got it has nothing to do with me. It's your money. Chances are I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to sleep with your husband and or your boyfriend. There are certain things that I will not do today. Now, don't walk up and hit me because I will hit you back. <laughs> I promise you I'm not that healthy. <laughs> My sponsor got sick, and we knew she was dying. And my daughter and I went over, and we found her. I found her on her bathroom floor dead the day after Valentine's Day a few years ago. The night before, when I tucked her in bed because she could no longer do for herself, I was blessed to be able to do for her, to clean her house, to run her errands, to take her needles. When I tucked her in bed that night, she looked up at me and she said, Cricket, darling, you know I love you. For the very first time, I looked in her face and she had those beautiful lines that God etches as people age those beautiful lines. And a tear came out of her eyes and went down one of those cracks. I looked her in the eyes and I said, Betty G, I love you too. And then I ran out of her townhouse. When my daughter and I found her dead the next morning, I knelt down beside her and I covered her because my sponsor was a lady. I went to the reform school. She went to finishing school. I have a fourth grade education. She has a master, had a master's degree. And I thought, what do I do? 
I know people kept saying nobody's indispensable in their right. But my friends, she was irreplaceable. I don't know about anybody in this room, but if you have a sponsor that loves you enough to tell you the truth, you better grab onto that and thank God for it. If you don't like what they're telling you, you better grab onto them and hang for the ride. Because a sponsor with the help of God in an AA group, the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 Traditions and Active Service Work, can teach us to be something we never imagined we could be. I wanted to be clean. All of my life, I've wanted to be clean. And not just on the outside. I wanted somebody to find a way to go inside of me and give me a shower. And it was the hands and the heart of that sponsor that could go inside of me and give me a shower. I didn't want to be an abusive woman. And it was the hands and the heart of that sponsor that taught me how to not call you bad names. And I am so grateful. See, I'm not the woman I was when I came here. And I found out about a year and a half ago that uh, for some reason I have some kind of gastro type of cancer growing inside and there's a big old tumor and the doctor told me he said I I had six months I went from a size 12 down to a size 4 and I said uh, six months he said yes ma'am and I said well that's I don't think that's acceptable (laughs) (laughs) I need a little bit longer than that sir and he said well cricket and he cried the doctor and I sat there and, and the gentleman cried I told him, you know, I don't mind going to wherever we go after this deal's over. But let me tell you what I want my heaven to be. Right now, I live in the same house that my daughter came home from the hospital to. I've made every house payment. The city values it at $20,000, and you couldn't pay me for that house. That's my corner. There's 16 windows. No two rooms are the same color. And the outside of it is as yellow as that gentleman's shirt. And I've got birds, and I've got trees, and I've got rocks. And I live right in the middle of Mexican gang town. Those little Mexican children come to my house. They come to my corner. And I get to touch them. I get to put my hands on their face and heal them from the outside. Heal all everything they have inside as it comes through them and they want to be okay. I get to teach them to read. I get to teach them to read because of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. And so when the doctor told me that, I knew that the girls are at that turning point. They're either going to join the gang and get into the alcoholism and do some things that they're going to regret the rest of their lives. And I feel like I'm supposed to be there for them. And so I asked God if he'd give me five more years. And I believe that he's graciously done that. I wrote him a letter. And I said, dear God, sir, let me tell you how I want my corner of heaven to be. I don't want a mansion. I want a little colorful cottage. I don't want streets paved in gold. I want a dirt road with a river running through I want lots of lights. I want to hear the child's laughter 
I want to hear the cry of a newborn baby. I want to hear the rustle of the dry leaves in the autumn. You know why? Because all of that reminds me that you are God. And I looked around what I have, and I have it all, my friends. I have it all right now on my little corner of the world in Fort Worth, Texas. And the neat part about it is, just last week or so, they found some medication that may cure what I have. And I don't know that that's going to happen. Don't know that I can afford it. Don't know that I'm supposed to. It doesn't matter. My God knows that my journey's not over yet because I still need somebody to touch me. And I'm not talking about physical touching. I'm talking, I need somebody to go inside of me and find that little corner and touch it one more time. And guess what? I need to touch somebody one more time. When I go home this weekend, and one of my sponsorees, a beautiful woman and her husband, pick me up, and I go back to my corner of the world, there's going to be about 10 little brown-eyed children, and their little eyes are going to light up. And I get to kneel down before them and behold their beauty. I get to do that. Are we blessed? Are we blessed? I don't know about y'all. None of my business. I am the richest, most blessed woman I know. I am a woman that walked into the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous with the rotten teeth, rotten attitude, nasty, filthy hair, nasty, filthy body, nasty, filthy mouth, no morality at all, a liar, a cheat, a con artist, a troublemaker, a manipulator, a woman who has broken every commandment that God wrote. That's what I was. And what stands before you today is a woman who has cleared that up, who has started at step one and gone all the way through. And I ask God to help me continue to try to be of maximum service to him. If I have been blessed, it's because of you. My gratitude goes out to the members of Al-Anon and Alateen. My gratitude goes out to the members of Alcoholics Anonymous unwaveringly a debt that can never be paid is my gratitude to my sponsor, my Betty G. I do have other sponsors now, but it's not the same. And I thank the people here, whoever you were, that found me worthy enough to get to stand up in front of you for a little while and tell you my name's Cricket and I'm an alcoholic. Thank you for my life. Thank you for my sobriety. Thank you for my sanity. Thank you for the cleanliness that I have deep down inside. Thank you for your touch. Thank you for making me whole. Thank you for being my voice when I couldn't speak. Thank you, you for, thank you for holding me up when I couldn't stand on my own. Thank you, everybody. <laughs>